I'm going to be reading um, a scripture from the Hebrew scriptures. You can find it on page 101 in your pew Bible. It's in your bulletin, or you can just listen. I'll be reading from Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 32. Moses came down from Mount Sinai. As he came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant in his hand, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, the skin of his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke with them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. The word of the Lord. We've been spending time in the Gospel of Mark in the last few weeks, but more toward the very beginning. We've been spending time in chapter 1. We're going to jump today on Transfiguration Sunday to Mark's version of that famous story. Transfiguration Sunday is the Sunday before we enter into the season of Lent, which begins this Wednesday, February 14th, a.k.a. Valentine's Day at 7.30 p.m. You're all invited to be part of that special service where we experience uh, scripture and music and the imposition of ashes. We're going to be led by our middle school students again this year, a great tradition in the life of this church, as we confront not only and not just our own mortality, but the good news that when we do that, we are most open to and ready to receive the love and grace and presence of God, which is always ours when we let God in. So again, 7.30 this Wednesday evening, February 14th. What a way to celebrate love together. Listen now for what the Spirit is saying to you into the church in the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Peter did not know what to say, because they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved, listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? May the meditations of our hearts together upon your word to us today be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. So he starts glowing white. His clothes become, Mark says, a radiant white. And this miracle story, this transfiguration story, which occurs 
in the other, other two synoptic gospels as well, Luke and Matthew, would seem to be a story about Jesus. It happens to him, right? This incredible phenomenon. But I think this story, as with all gospel stories, is really about the people who follow Jesus up on that high mountain that day. And therefore, this story, by extension, is about you and about me. Um, in today's lessons, Jesus is transfigured. His appearance is changed, and that change reveals God's love for him, talking shop with Jesus, but he's the one radiating, glowing, clearly in the superior position in this way Mark is telling the story. Jesus is shining like the sun, and it's up to Peter, James, and John, and by extension you and me, to figure out what this all means for us. That's the ending that hasn't been written yet. You have to write it. Peter, James, and John are going to have to write their own endings with God, and I will too. So what would you do if something like that happened to you on a mountaintop? Something as amazing as the transfiguration of Jesus. H.G. Wells, the famous British writer, author of War of the Worlds, once told a story about an Anglican bishop. This bishop was the kind of minister who could always be counted on in any religious moment to provide a pious platitude like none other. Whenever a problem, was a pastoral problem, was brought to this bishop, he always had a favorite answer ready that served him in good stead and frankly kept his counseling load during the week to a minimum. A troubled soul would come to the bishop, bear his soul, open up his heart, and the bishop, assuming his best stained glass voice, would, would inquire, have you prayed about it? And after he said that, there was nothing more that needed to be said, usually. Bishop himself wasn't a person who prayed very much. Sadly, that's true of a lot of clergy, I think, not just Anglicans. All of us struggle with this. This bishop felt quite self-sufficient, thank you very much. Like most of us, most of the time, uh, and, but one day, like it does to all of us, life tumbled in on this bishop, and he found himself overwhelmed, at a loss for what to do and where to turn. So it occurred to him that maybe, just maybe, this was the one time he should take his own advice, pray about it. So late one Saturday afternoon, the bishop entered the cathedral. He knelt down and folded his, folded his hands before the altar, and he couldn't help thinking as he did how childlike this seemed, how embarrassing that the minister with all the answers needed help. And he was glad, he thought to himself, that the sanctuary was empty. Best get it over with, he thought. So, kneeling there, hands folded, the bishop began to pray, Oh God! And suddenly there was a voice, crisp, businesslike, well, what is it? The next morning, when the worshipers came for Sunday services, they found their bishop sprawled face down before the altar. They turned him over 
and he was dead. Lines of horror etched upon his face. The good bishop had advised others to approach God in prayer, but when he found himself face to face with the Almighty, it scared him to death, literally. Maybe you've heard the old adage that sharks only grow as large as their surroundings will allow. Turns out that's wrong. Uh, As a genus, sharks are very adaptive, but there are actually over 500 different species of shark, which gives us the impression that each one of them is adapting individually to its surroundings, not so. If you have a small aquarium in your living room, which I'd like to have, but it gets vetoed every time I bring it up, I would not advise placing a baby whale shark in there. She will not adapt to her environment that quickly. She is going to grow up to 60 feet in length. But you can place a dwarf lantern shark in your home aquarium. Fully grown, he will be only 8 inches long. 500 different species. Unlike sharks, though, as a species, we humans are very and highly adaptive. If we are challenged to live heroic, risk-taking, loving, serving, justice-seeking lives for Christ, to love more fully, to give more riskily, to empty ourselves over and over again like Jesus did so that we will be filled over and over again like Jesus was, you and I, each of us, has that capability. Left unchallenged, however, most of us stay kind of where we are, kind of with a stunted understanding of and commitment to faith, a nodding acquaintance with God who wants to love us, wants to transform us, wants to make possible for us the abundant life we were born to live. Some of us need the ocean, and some of us are fine in our home aquarium. But we can surprise ourselves When Sarah and I first moved out to New Jersey from our one-bedroom apartment in Manhattan, and many of you have experienced the same thing, at first we thought there was no way we could fill up all those rooms in that three-bedroom, two-bathroom house in Cranford. But we did in about two weeks, and now she keeps wanting to order dumpsters to get rid of stuff. Our lesson contains one of those growing, stretching experiences that occurred again and again for the disciples in the Gospels. The disciples go with Jesus up to the top of a mountain. He invites them into this place of challenge. He's there with his three most trusted followers, Peter, James, and John. As usual, Mark doesn't give us many details about what happened all there, up there, All we know is that Jesus took his three followers, and there they witnessed something incredible. Jesus was transfigured. But what does that really mean? Well, it means he was changed. A transition took place before their eyes. It means that they saw in him, in that moment, the glory of God. The disciples saw the glory, and in it they saw their future in a way they had never seen it before. And that's about the best, I think, that anybody can define what they experienced. 
right before their eyes, Mark tells us that Jesus was elevated to an even higher plateau. A voice confirmed it. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus is someone who brings, he is the one who brings God close. Which reminds me of a wedding reception I attended in New Jersey a number of years ago. After presiding at the ceremony, um, I always get to go to the reception. That's the best part after the ceremony. Uh, The dancing, the eating, the singing, and this particular groom was an amazing musician. He was could play any number of instruments. He's the, the director of the Arts in the Park at New, in New Brunswick. Most notably at the time, in his early 30s, he was the musical arranger and manager of the famous New Jersey doo-wop group, The Duprees. How many of you know The Duprees? What's the big song? You Belong to Me. This guy was such an amazing musician, you can imagine the kind of wedding band he had at the reception. It was incredible. And that woman was just killing it, the lead singer, until they invited this table full of little old men with fake hair and fake tans and very young blonde dates to walk up to the microphone and sing a couple of numbers. And when they started singing, you realize why they're famous. It was incredible. They sang You Belong to Me and a couple of other numbers. And you realize that these guys were good beyond good. They were from another planet. They were brilliant. And that poor woman, they handed the the mic back to her. It was like following a kid, right? You can't, what what do you do after after someone like, it's like handing Michael Jordan the basketball at a a college game and having him shoot around for a while. And what, what are we here for? That's the best of the best. We get glimpses in life, don't we, of brilliance of the divine. We get glimpses in art, in music, in relationships, in friendships. We get glimpses of that in a baptism ceremony for a little girl named Addie. In that moment, it's all very clear what matters most. I was talking with a friend just the other day about the early 1970s Baltimore Orioles baseball team. And our conversation brought back memories and reminded me of when I was a little kid, and before I started f- loving the Los Angeles Dodgers, I don't love them anymore, but I loved them for a long time, I loved, along with my dad, the Baltimore Orioles, and especially their otherworldly third baseman, Brooks Robinson. I just caught the end of his career. I'm not that old. But to me, Brooks Robinson is still the standard of excellence for a third baseman. And if you don't believe me, young people, Google it. YouTube it. This guy played, they said, as if he came down from a higher league. That's how good this guy was. He played like he was on Heaven's baseball team already. And it is a crude analogy, but the disciples saw Jesus that day in that moment as if he came down from a higher league. Clothes a dazzling, otherworldly white, whiter, Mark says, than even oxyclean. Could make them. Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets, and lest we forget this incredible voice, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And they say the Bible isn't realistic, 
How did the disciples respond? Mark tells us they were terrified. I think that's a crucial statement. The disciples were terrified. We, you and I, would have been terrified too to witness something beyond anything we can imagine or explain scientifically or rationally or in any other way. We hear about people experiencing strange phenomena, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences, but for the most part, for most of us, these things don't happen. So we're a little suspicious. We're post-enlightenment people. I want to test it. I want it proven to me. We're suspicious when we hear reports of amazing things happening to other people, and we think there must be a rational explanation. We're suspicious when people seem a little too ready to see a ghost in their house, or Bigfoot, or talk to their great-great-great-great-aunt Gertrude, or when they say they died and came back to life, or realized while doing yoga that in a past life they were Alexander the Great or Marie Antoinette. I love the line in Bull Durham, the movie, by the way, when when Kevin Costner asks, why is it when people discover they lived past lives, they're always famous, not just Joe Schmo? There is a realism in this miraculous transfiguration story, isn't there? On the human side of it, it's quite realistic, this gospel story. It always is. Mark, the author, wants us to trust and believe that Jesus is God's son, God's presence, to understand and accept and celebrate that that very presence and love that our God is here right now with us, and that's why he's glowing and the disciples don't get it. They never do. They don't fall on their knees and start worshiping. They don't understand what they're seeing. They react like anybody would. That's the genius of this gospel literature. They are terrified, Mark says. They're dealing with something outside their ability to control or predict. Peter babbles something about making booths or dwelling places to try to capture the moment, like Kodak, But in an instant, the moment is gone. And only Jesus is standing there again with them. And yet, Mark is saying to us that Jesus is Lord and is present as God's son to these guys, these regular human beings, even though they don't get it. Jesus loves them, calls them. He's going to give them everything that they are need, that they're going to need, even though they don't get it. Jesus reveals himself to them anyway, loves them anyway, even though, like us, they don't get it. And of course, some 2,000 years later, we would be suspicious of Peter, James, and John's report, except for the way it affected their lives, the evidence that we do have, their experience, as well as many other experiences they had with Jesus, transformed, transfigured them radically as well. So you and I can easily dismiss or spiritualize this miracle story, this transfiguration story, all we want, but it was apparently quite real to James, John, and Peter. We know that because it changed them. That's how you know God really is present in Jesus Christ, in the evidence of change in his followers. That's how you and I evaluate the truth of the gospel claim. The evidence we can see is the difference that it makes. Here was Christ in all his glory, 
Here was someone whose life shone with a beauty and an integrity and a dignity that they had never experienced, these guys, that they didn't even know was possible. Here was someone whose dazzling robes showed his holiness, radiated his divinity, his holiness and uniqueness, while these guys, like us, were just ordinary mortals, regular people who come face to face on that mountain with their limitations, their humanness, their lack of complete understanding or power or control at precisely the same moment that they come face to face with God. That's the secret. That's the secret, by the way, of Ash Wednesday, when we have the ashes imposed on our foreheads. When we come face to face with our limitations, we're going to come face to face to God, who's going to, is going to be right there to reassure us that we are never alone. Never. And that's the good news for Addie, for you, and for me this morning. That gospel good news is going to lead us all the way into Lent and through those six weeks to Easter Sunday morning. We meet God, this story tells us. We see God's glory most clearly and personally where, when we are confronted with our own humanness. When we're ready, therefore, to become partners with the God who loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us. The God who's ready even to die for us to make that relationship possible now and forever. So I'll conclude with the quote that begins our bulletin this morning from Nadia Boltz Weber. I think, she writes, in the transfiguration, Jesus collapses any meaningful distinction between lofty mountains and dusty valleys. Jesus has made low even the mount of his own transfiguration to be with us. You need not reach for glory because holiness has come to dwell with us even in the valley of our shadows. Thanks be to God. Amen.